keep my strumming arm going to keep up with Ryan sometimes. Good job. We are uh, getting near the end of our series on Chronicles. We've got this week and next week we enter exile. Uh, so we'll be talking about that next week. Um, but as we come this morning, and we, we read our scripture as we were worshiping this morning, and, and hopefully you caught on that our worship was kind of moving with the scripture as these people stopped what they were doing and came back to a, a renewed sense of worship in the temple. So as we come this morning and open up God's word, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. Would you speak to us this morning through me or despite me? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at a series of character studies of the kings of Judah. And in particular, most of the stories we looked at last week were not good. They were not examples we wanted to be following. Uh, we, there were some kings who were completely unfaithful. They were sacrificing children. They were worshiping idols. They were killing siblings. They were killing uh, rival officials. Uh, it was just not good. Asking you shall receive... Okay, all right, all right. Well, now we're good to go. We got a while now. All right. Faithful people, that's awesome. Some of the kings that we looked at last week were kind of, sort of faithful. They kind of, sort of followed God, at least when it made sense for them, uh, when it was benefiting them. Uh, one of the kings we looked at last week, it said he followed God, but not with his whole heart. He wasn't really into it. He's just kind of going through the motions. Some of the kings were faithful for a while. They started out really well, following God, trusting God, walking in the way of Yahweh, but then they would turn. They would stop being faithful. They might um, start trusting their own power. They might get a, a full sense of pride and, and thinking, I can do this by myself. I don't need any help. I'm doing pretty well without God. And they stopped being faithful. You might see some modern day examples of that as we look around the church today. Uh, unfortunately, in the last year, we've heard some stories of Catholic priests who probably became priests because they felt a genuine sense of call from God and from the church, but they started to have power over people, over vulnerable children and women. They turned from walking faithfully with God. It's not just a Catholic thing. In the last couple of months, the Willow Creek Association uh, the Willow Creek Church and the Global Leadership Summit, all who were kind of formed around Bill Hybels, have taken a huge hit after he was found to have been abusing his power over women. And then the leaders of the, the organizations were trying to silence and shame accusers and those that were trying to hold him accountable. 
just in the last week. James McDonald was fired from the Harvest uh, Association of Churches, another big name pastor abusing his power. In each of these cases, people who at one point genuinely were trying to follow God began to see that they had power over people, and they abused that power. Some of these cases were kind of a cult of personality. The reputation of the individual, the reputation of the organization was elevated over the care of those that they had been called to serve. People at one point walking faithfully with God, but they turned. After stories of unfaithful kings killing siblings, mothers getting rid of children, kings sacrificing their children, people with diseased bowels gushing out, oh, that, that was terrible. I, reading that la- the other week, I thought, man, that is not a good way to go. After reading all those stories and hearing what's happening in our own time, it's time for some good news. And so Hezekiah in chapters 2 Chronicles 29 through 32 gives us some hope. See, following a series of kings who failed to walk faithfully with God, Hezekiah brings some good news. He begins to refocus and to reform worship. He opens up the doors to the temple so that people can come and worship God again. He clears out the temple. It's been filling with all kinds of junk. Uh, There's been other shrines and other uh, high places to other gods built up in Jerusalem, and he gets rid of them. And he sets to uh, sanctifying the temple. In fact, there's so much work in sanctifying the temple and the city that have to take place that he starts bringing in additional Levites. And some of the priests haven't really kept themselves clean. And so he's got to bring these Levites in to come and help sanctify the temple. In 2 Chronicles 29, 34, we see that other Levites are consecrated to help with these sacrifices. It's kind of a foreshadowing of what happens in the New Testament when we have the priesthood of believers, that it no longer has to happen. Worship no longer has to happen through the the priests and the Levites, but we all have the opportunity to come before God, to worship, to pray, to sacrifice our time, our talents, our treasures, all those things. And then Hezekiah invites others to come and join in the worship. Early on in our series in Chronicles, we kind of talked about how uh, the chronicler, when he wrote this book, had kind of a bigger vision of what the people of God included. And so there were people in the genealogies who probably formally, technically shouldn't be there, but they're there. And those that were blessed, that were outsiders, the, the Obed-Edom from Gath who received God's blessing because he was faithful to God. We see again that Hezekiah has this bigger vision for the people of God. And he, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1, Hezekiah invites Israel, Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh to come and to celebrate the Passover. He's welcoming people who at one point had been unfaithful to God. Israel and some of these other tribes had completely turned their back 
on Yahweh. But Hezekiah doesn't say, oh, we're going to worship without them. Those unfaithful heathen, those heretics, they've turned their back on God. He says, the temple's open. Worship is open. We're coming back and we're welcoming you to come and to celebrate Passover, to come and celebrate the central event of our shared life together. The story of God's saving acts, rescuing and redeeming His people. Come and celebrate with us. Everyone was welcome. The foreigners, the aliens, all those people are welcome to come and to worship. And they agreed to celebrate Passover, even though it wasn't technically, legally, according to the law of Moses, the right time to celebrate the Passover. They're supposed to wait a little bit longer in order to actually celebrate the Passover. But Hezekiah and the people seem to say, you know what? We've waited long enough. Worship of God, celebrating the Passover, it's waited long enough. We're not going to wait another month. We're not going to wait another week. We're not going to wait another day. We are going to come and we are going to worship God. And we are going to celebrate the Passover few people from the other tribes, they come and they show up to Jerusalem. There's a number of people uh, from these other tribes who are ceremonially unclean. They have not done the proper things according to the Torah, the law of Moses, to keep themselves clean. And so Levites are brought in to sacrifice the Passover lambs. And it says, other than that, they tried to follow the law. What I think is really neat about that is they kind of said, the law is important, um, but we believe in this situation, what matters is us coming humbly before God. We may not have everything perfectly, absolutely correct. We may be doing things a little bit differently. We may be fudging a little bit here, but we believe that us coming humbly before God to worship is what really matters. Worship goes so well then that they decide to extend worship. Can you imagine that? That would be great. Just say, hey, we're not doing anything for the next week. Let's just keep worshiping. That would be great. Uh, someone in Michelle said maybe that turns into like a youth all-nighter and we spend the night here. I'm not sure that I'm ready for that necessarily, but we could extend worship a little bit longer. In our world, in our day, it's easy to look around at the state of the church, especially in America, and to get disappointed. When we see these stories of Catholic priest abuse right here in our own state, when big names in American evangelical circles are abusing power and sex, it gives the whole church a black stain. You look at how the church has been co-opted by politicians for their own power. How the church at times has bowed to idols of political power. Bowed to idols of nationalism and militarism. And all of those idols are part of the story of unfaithfulness in Chronicles. And some in the church even have an escapist mentality and theology. They believe that the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And those people, those sinners, those 
they're going to get what they deserve. Man, that doesn't sound like good news. So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to redeem, to renew, and to restore. And the story of the Bible, the story of Scripture doesn't end with a closed gate and people floating on a cloud playing a harp. There's harps mentioned. If you're not sure about that, go read the last two chapters of Revelation where God makes his dwelling in a new Jerusalem, in a new heavens and a new earth. And get this, it says the gates never close. I have serious questions sometimes about the American church's commitment to discipleship in the way of Jesus. And we can and we should ask these hard questions of ourselves and of our family of faith. And then we can be part of the problem or we can be part of the solution. See, Hezekiah turns things around. He doesn't follow in the line of his father and his grandfather and those couple kings before him. He works to refocus on God. He says, enough is enough. We're going to stop here, and we're going to just refocus on God. Later, Assyria comes to attack Jerusalem, but Hezekiah trusts God. And in 2 Chronicles 32, 22, we hear a statement that is very similar to what we heard early on in Chronicles. It says, so the Lord saved Hezekiah, and God gave them rest on every side. Hezekiah wasn't perfect. Late in life, he's tested. He gets sick, and it seems for a moment that he might choose to go his own way or go the way of his father and his grandfather. But in the end, he confesses what he's done, and he repents, and he follows God again. See, Hezekiah helps to initiate renewal and revival in Judah, and with the temple. And sometimes God's people need a little bit of renewal, a good revival. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and he, he interrupts the temple system and he claims that he is the temple. He comes as the final and complete sacrifice. And the curtain in the temple as Jesus dies is torn and no longer priests and Levites are the only people that can come into the temple, into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, but we all have access to God. And the followers of Jesus can come and worship in spirit and in truth. And throughout history, there have been faithful groups of people who have committed themselves to, to really turning back to Scripture and following God and asking hard questions of the church. In the Middle Ages, it was monks and nuns who gathered together and who asked some hard questions of what the church was doing. St. Francis asked tough questions about how the church was going on all these crusades, trying to build up their wealth and their, their power and their control over land. He asked questions about how is the church caring for the poor. St. Clair of Assisi she lived in solidarity with the poor, while some leaders uh, in the church were living in decadence, living very extravagant lifestyles. She was asking and living out 
a question of the church. And at one point, people were starting to take notice, and, and the Pope said, Sister Claire, you don't have to keep living this way. I release you from your vow of poverty. She wouldn't do it. How, how can I leave these people that Jesus cared so much for? Later, Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. He asked hard questions of a church that had, in many ways, put Scripture in the back seat. They were worried about their traditions and, and following one person other than Jesus. And so he asked hard questions. And when Luther and Calvin and other reformers weren't willing to ask even bigger questions and live it out, there were people like the Anabaptists and the Moravians and others who came and said, yeah, man, what we believe is super important. But you know what? We also should live it out. We need to put it into practice. In more recent times, Martin Luther King Jr. asked a lot of hard questions of a lot of people. And he asked a lot of hard questions of political leaders and political systems. But some of his biggest questions and critiques were aimed at the church. I don't know how many of us know, but we've just come through Black History Month. It's interesting that we have to set aside a special month for that. White History Month we just call history. But Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a certain letter when he was arrested in Birmingham. It's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And any time I talk about this or uh, read through it, I get choked up because I'm white clergy. And he writes a, a very pointed letter to pastors in Birmingham who thought he was just a troublemaker, coming and stirring things up, stirring the pot. You're just here to make a bunch of trouble. You just need to sit and be patient and wait. And King said, how long are we supposed to wait for this? How long are we supposed to wait for the church to be the church and and ask these bigger questions for all of God's people? Where do we fit into this list? I know historically and theologically where we're supposed to fit in. I can tell you where I want us to fit in, but where do we really fit in? Are we concerned about coming back before God and refocusing on Jesus, reforming our worship and our lives, our faithfulness? This week I finished reading a book called Anabaptist Essentials by Palmer Becker. What I was thinking about with this sermon is that one of the strengths of Anabaptist faith is its emphasis on faithful living, daily walking with Jesus. It's not just about what you believe belief is super important, but how do you live that out every day in your life? And the Anabaptists began with a strong sense of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they believed they were citizens of the kingdom of God. And they preached the kingdom of God. And then they faced a ton of persecution. People coming against them. 
And you know what? They went from a group that would preach to anyone and everyone about the kingdom of God who lived a very different way of life. And they became known as the quiet in the land. You go, oh, aren't the Amish quaint? But at one point, they boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God. And they lived out the kingdom of God. They lived lives sold out for the kingdom. They invited anyone and everyone to come and worship, the faithful or the unfaithful. It wasn't about, we are a closed community and that big bad world out there, they're going to hell. It was about welcoming people. It was about going out. It was about proclaiming and living out the kingdom of God. That's kind of the worship I want to be a part of. We're called to remember the saving acts of God. For Hezekiah, that was Passover. For us, it's the life and the teaching and the death for our sins and resurrection and ascension. And Jesus promised that he is coming again. These are the saving acts of God. Hezekiah celebrated Passover. For us, communion and love feast help us remember the saving acts of God. This is what we're called to. Amen. As the praise team comes back up here, um, our closing song is going